Chapter 42 Mystery of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Knight. Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. Chapter 42 A Struggle. I think that at first sheer amazement had controlled the Spaniard's thoughts, but whatever the cause of the control was, it soon passed away. Then the whole fiery nature of the man seemed to sweep from him like a torrent. And so all the learned arguments with which you have overwhelmed me were but a cloak to cover your possession of the treasure which it was given to me and mine to guard. I might have guessed that without the certainty of possession you would not have been so obdurate to offer given in all sincerity as it was from other things too i might have known that woman so old who watches you with eyes that see more than is to see and who have reason of her own to mistrust you she told to me that nightly she was heard you dig in the rock as though you make grave take care it is not so i am guardian of that treasure and i am desperate Already have I told you that all things are to me, all ways to fulfill the trust of my fathers. We are here alone. I am armed, and already my life is forfeit to this cause. Yield yourself then to me. Like a flash of light, he had drawn a dagger from his breast, and with an upward sweep of his hand held it poised, either to strike or throw. But already I had taken warning from his eyes. Ever since danger had threatened Marjorie, I had carried my revolver with me. Even at night it rested under my pillow. The practice which Marjorie and I had often had, till she had taught me the old trick which her father had taught her of getting the drop on an adversary, stood me now in good stead. Whilst he had been drawing his dagger, I had already covered him. He finished the words of his command straight into the muzzle of my six-shooter. I said as quietly as I could, for it was with a mighty effort I kept approximately calm under stress of such a sudden attack. Drop that dagger. Quick, or I shall shoot it from your hands. He recognized his helplessness in the matter. With a despairing sigh, he opened his fingers. The dagger fell jingling to the floor. I went on. Now hold up your hands, well above your head. Move back to the wall. He did so and stood facing me with a disdainful smile. I stooped and with my right hand picked up the dagger, still keeping him covered with my left. I put the weapon on the far side of the table and approached him. He did not move, but I could see that he was sizing me up. This gave me no anxiety, for I knew my own strength, and I had also a shrewd idea that if he had any other arm about him, he would not be calculating his chances for a physical struggle. Cautioning him that his life depended on his stillness, for I still held my revolver to his breast, I passed my hand lightly over him. He had manifestly no other weapon. The only sign of one was the sheath of his dagger. This I took from him. I placed the dagger in it and put it in my own pocket. Then I drew a chair to the middle of the room and motioned him to sit down. He obeyed sullenly. Having by the time regained something of my serenity of mind, I spoke. Your pardon, sir, for the indignity to which I have been obliged to submit you, but I am sure you will remember that it was not I who began the question of force. When you thought it right to draw arms upon me in my own house, you made it necessary that I should protect myself. Now, 
Let me say something in answer to your charge against me. The finding of the treasure has nothing whatever to do with my theory of action. I should hold my present view just as strongly had we not made the discovery. Indeed, I may say that since we had actual possession of the treasure, it seems not nearly so desirable as it had been. So far as I am concerned, I don't care a straw whether I have ultimate possession of it or not, but I am so fixed up that if I waive my rights, that is, if I have any to waive, that I may aid in doing a repugnant thing to a very dear friend, that I shall not do. I shall oppose it doing by any means in my power. The Spaniard saw a chance and spoke. But if I undertake, I cut him short. Sir, in this matter you are not in a position to undertake. By your own showing, you are simply bound to fulfill your trust and to restore the treasure to the king, who will restore it to the pope, or to restore it to the pope direct, he answered quickly. But I can stipulate. Again, I interrupted him, for this was a useless road to travel. How can you stipulate? You would, or might, be told to simply fulfill the duty that had been undertaken for you. Did you refuse, from whatever motive, no matter how justly founded, on ground of right or honor, you would not be holding to the simple terms of your trust? No, sir. This is not a private affair to be settled by you or me, or by us both together. It belongs to politics, and international politics at that. The government of Spain is so desperately in want of money. How do you know to what shift or to what spacious argument it will condescend in its straits? I have no doubt at all that, should anything be done contrary to your idea of fair play, you would be grievously pained, but that is not to the point. Your government would not take thought for any wish of yours any more than it ought of mine. Your king is a minor, his region is a woman, and his counselors and governors are all men chosen to do what they can to save their country. Sir, but a few minutes ago you professed it your duty to take any step, even to crime and dishonor, to carry out your duty. Indeed, you drew a weapon upon me, a presumably unarmed man, in my own house in which you are a self-invited guest. Suppose some of the government of Spain hold ideas of their duty, equally strong and equally unscrupulous. Who then is to answer for what they do? Why, in such case, they would undertake anything until they had gotten possession of the treasure and would then act entirely upon what they would call their better judgment. His native pride awoke in an instant, and he said hotly, I would have you know, senor, and remember always when you talk with a Spaniard that our statesmen are not criminals but men of honor. I bowed instinctively as I answered him. Sir, I have no doubt whatever, and I speak in all sincerity, that you yourself are, under normal circumstances, a man of the highest honor. Your self-sacrificing offer has shown me that, and I have added to that knowledge by seeing the pain you have suffered at even the thought of dishonor. Here he bowed low, and there was a look of gratitude in his eyes which touched me to the quick. And yet even you have openly told me that all your belief in honor, all your lifelong adherence to its behest, will not keep you from fulfilling a duty should these things clash. Nay, more, you have already done things which I take it are at variance with your principles. How then can you or I believe that other men of less lofty lineage and less delicate sense of honor will forego an advantage for their country in distress, yielding to a theoretical point of right or wrong? No, sir. 
I went on piteously, for I felt that it would be a kindness to him to shut absolutely this door of hope. We must take no step which will place in the hands of others the guardianship of that treasure, of which you have hitherto conceived yourself trustee, and of which I now believe myself to be the owner. For fully several minutes we faced each other in silence. His face grew more and more fixed and stern. At last he stood up, with such a look of resolution that instinctively my fingers tightened round the butt of my revolver. I thought that he might be about to throw himself upon me and attempt even at such odds as were against him a struggle for present mastery. Then, without moving from his place, he spoke. When I have done all I can to fulfill my trust in its completeness and have failed, I shall ask the government of my country to make representation to her friend England of a friendly claim, so that we may get even a part of the treasure, and then I will devote myself to the avenging of my honor on those who have foiled me in my duty. This was a sort of speech which braced me up again. It was a promise of war, man to man, and I could understand it better than the subtleties which now enmeshed us. I put my pistol back in my pocket and bowed to my opponent as I answered. And when that time comes, sir, you will find me at your service, how you will, where you will, and when you will. In the meantime, when first you place the matter on the international plane, I shall take care that the American government, in which dear friends of mine are interested, shall make friendly demand of her friend, England, that she shall take no step with regard to the particular treasure, if indeed it be then in her possession, which may be used to the detriment of the transatlantic power. Thus you see, sir, that time must in any case elapse before a final settlement. Nothing can be done till the close of the present war, when I take it that immediate need of the sinews of war shall have ceased to exist. Be very careful, then, how you take any steps to bring upon the scene other powers than ourselves, powers vastly more strong and vastly less scrupulous, perhaps. He answered nothing, but looked at me a long time in silent, cold disdain. Then he said quietly, "'Have I your permission, Signor, to depart?' I bowed and brought him to the door. When outside, he turned and lifted his hat high in an old-fashioned, stately way, bowed. He passed up the laneway towards Winifold without once glancing back. As I stood looking at him, I saw in the dusk Gormala's head now and again showing above the low green bank which guarded the edge of the cliff. She was bent double and was in secret following the Spaniard. I went back to the house to think over matters. Altogether, we were getting so complicated that there did not seem any straight road to take. In the back of my mind, I had a firm idea that the best thing I could do would be to hand over the treasure to the custody of the police, inform the sheriff, and get my solicitor to enter a formal claim of ownership, wherever the claim should be made. Then I should get Marjorie to come upon our honeymoon. I could see that her mind was almost, if not quite, made up to accept this step, and for a while I lost myself in a daydream. I came back to the reality of things by dimly and gradually realizing that it had grown dark. So I made preparation for the night, bearing in mind that I had a vast treasure in my possession, and that a desperate man who claimed to represent its ownership was aware that I had it in the house. It was not till I had seen to the fastenings of every window and door that I began to prepare a meal. By this time I was exceedingly hungry. When I had eaten, I seated myself before a rousing fire of pine logs, lit my pipe, and began to think, without the wind rising. 
I could hear it whilst along the roof, and now and again it roared and boomed down the chimney. The leaping fire seemed to answer its call. I could not think definitely. My thoughts kept whirling in a circle from the Spaniard to the treasure, from the treasure to Gormala, from Gormala to Marjorie, and from Marjorie back to the Spaniard again. Every time the cycle became complete and my thoughts came back to Marjorie, my rapture as I thought of her and of our future became clouded by a vague uneasiness. It was out of this that the thought of Don Bernardino came to commence the next round of thought. In all my mental wanderings, he became a dominant character. His pride, his sense of duty, which subordinated even honor, his desperation, his grief, all seemed to be with me and around me. Now and again I trembled when I thought that such self-sacrificing forces might be turned against Marjorie. Little by little, despite all my anxiety, stole over me the disposition of sleep. I was indeed almost worn out. The events of the past few days had crowded together so quickly that I had had no time for pause. Even the long sleep, which had crowned the vigil in the water cave, had not enabled me to lay in, so to speak, a provision of sleep. It had been the payment of a debt to nature rather than the putting by of capital. I had the consoling thought that Marjorie had promised me she would not leave Crom Castle till I came. Safe in this thought, I rolled myself in rugs, choosing those that she had used, and fell asleep. I think that even in sleep I did not lose the sense of my surroundings, for in dreams my thoughts ran in their waking channel. Here again, all the disturbing elements of my life of late became jumbled together, and a sort of anxiety regarding something unknown seemed to brood over me. So far as I remember, I slept fitfully, waking often in a sort of agony of indefinite apprehension. A couple of times I made up the fire which was falling low, for there was a sort of companionship in it. Without, the wind howled more loudly, and each time as I sank back to rest I pulled the rugs more closely around me. Once I started broad awake. I thought I'd heard a cry, and naturally, in my present frame of mind, my thoughts flew to Marjorie in some danger. She was calling me. Whatever the cause was, it reached my brain through a thick veil of sleep. My body answered, and before I had time to think of why or wherefore, I was standing on the floor, broad awake, alert, and panting. Again there came a sharp cry outside, which threw me in an instant into a cold sweat. Marjorie was in danger and was calling me. Instinctively I ran to the window, and pulling open the shutters threw up the sash. All was dark outside, with just that cold line on the far eastern horizon which told of coming dawn. The wind had risen high and swept past me into the room, rustling papers and making the flames dance. Every now and again a bird swept by me on the wings of the wind, screaming as it flew, for the house was so close to the sea that the birds took no note of it as they would ordinarily do of a human habitation. One of them came so close that its screams seemed to sound loudly in my ears. It was doubtless just such a cry as this which had torn me from my sleep. For a while I hesitated whether I should go right away to Crom, but second thoughts prevailed. I could not get into the house at such an hour without creating alarm and causing comment. So I went back to the chimney corner and, piling on fresh logs and snuggling into my nest of rugs, soon found sleep again descending on me. The serenity of thought which comes with the day was using its force. 
This time I woke more slowly. The knocking was continuous and imperative, but it was not a terrifying sound. We are all more or less used to such sounds. I listened, and gradually consciousness of my surroundings came back to me. The knocking was certainly persistent. I put on my shoes and went to the door. Outside was Mrs. Jack, looking troubled and hot, in spite of the cold of the wind which seemed to sing around the house. As I opened the door, she slipped past me and closed it behind her. Her first words made my heart sink, and my blood run cold with vague terror. Is Marjorie here? End of chapter 42 Recording by Sandra Knight